the vision we have for the center, I think is quite unique in the American Vipassana Dharma scene. Now, rather than the more usual formal structure of a course with a daily schedule and nightly talks, the emphasis here is really on individual personalized practice, developing your own personal practice schedule. But places a lot of responsibility on yourself. The intention is not that people take a leisurely approach to the meditation just because Saira Upandita is not here <laughs> holding your feet to the fire. So it's not, it's not that it's the idea is for it to become a kind of club meditation. Rather, in my mind, it harkens back to even the time of the Buddha. You know, where there weren't 10-day courses or month-long courses, but rather people would go to the Buddha and the other great teachers of the time, get instruction in the practice, and then go and find some suitable, suitable place to train themselves, to actually do the practice you know, with a, with a quality of ordency and a quality of dedication. I was talking with Marie and Claire this uh, morning uh, and noting the transition from Saito Upandita's course to this. And in talking about what we hoped to create here was the sense of a gentle rigor you know, a rigorous practice, an ardent practice, a dedicated practice, but with a quality of gentleness. We can do it with gentleness. It's tremendously important. You know, the work that you'll be doing here over the next weeks and months I'd like to read a few lines from uh, the poet Rumi. He said, which is worth more, a crowd of thousands or your own genuine solitude? Freedom or power over an entire nation? A little while alone in your room will prove more valuable than anything else that could ever be given you. I think those are good words to describe the intent, the vision, and the practice that is done here. A little time alone in your room or in the hall will be of more value than anything that could ever be given you. The way we'll be practicing here at the Forest Refuge is very much how I was practicing in my early years in India. And I was staying at the Burmese Vihar in Bodh Gaya, which in terms of practice centers is about the other end of the spectrum from the Forest Refuge in terms of conducibility. <laughs> 
to to practice very difficult uh, physical situation. While I was there, I had tremendous energy and just nothing else I wanted to do. But for long periods of time, my my first teacher, uh, Anagarika Munindra, he would often be gone, you know, for months at a time. And so I was just there, sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And it was a tremendously powerful and productive time. Of course, here there will be the support of a couple of interviews a week, a couple of talks a week. So be that steady, ongoing input. But really, you will be following your own schedule of sitting and walking through the day. You know, and so the, the inspiration needs to come from within yourselves. Quality of self-motivation. Now, having been with Saira this past month, I think we were all tremendously inspired by the power of his teaching. And the power comes from his uncompromising understanding that liberation is possible, that freedom is possible. And for somebody to hold that standard with such impeccability really can inspire us and encourage us to practice with a level of impeccability. Because freedom is possible, liberation is possible. You know, practicing in a way that takes us beyond, perhaps, our comfortable habit patterns. For me, the beauty of this situation, this practice situation, is that we can stoke this fire from within. It's really all up to you. And you're all experienced practitioners, so you know very well that this journey of awakening is not always an easy one. Now, this is not an easy task. There are such strong forces in the mind you know, of desire, of aversion, of restlessness, of judging, of comparing, of hopes, of fears, of expectations, of disappointments. I mean, all of these are the kalesas, all of these are the forces of delusion in the mind. So it takes a very strong commitment. It takes tremendously dedicated uh, energy. It takes a certain fire within us you know, to stay awake and to stay aware, to stay mindful through all the many ups and downs of practice. Although this place, as I think you can appreciate, is amazingly beautiful and still and quiet, one of the yogis who just finished the course said, it was clear that all the disturbances came from my own mind, because there was not much in the environment that was contributing. So in that sense, it's a very good mirror. So we get to see 
these forces in the mind. You know, sometimes our experience is very pleasant. Sometimes our experience is very unpleasant. At times we're concentrated and calm and things are going smoothly, and at times not. We're agitated, we're restless, we're bored, we're depressed. It's all part of the journey. And we can really bring a very precise and careful mindfulness to every arising experience. There is nothing that arises in our experience that is outside of the practice. Internalizing that understanding will be a tremendous help. Because it's so easy to think that we go through certain kinds of experiences and somehow that's not, that's not really the practice. We take a little vacation from mindfulness then. The Buddha expressed it very clearly. This is from the Satipatthana Sutta. He said, whether going out or returning, the yogi acts with full attention. Whether looking ahead or looking around, he or she acts with full attention. Whether bending an arm or straightening it, he or she acts with full attention. In taking one's robe or bowl, yogi acts with full attention. Whether defecating or urinating, he or she acts with full attention. Whether walking, standing or sitting, whether resting or awake, whether talking or silent, he or she acts with full attention. So that's really our job. And we have one job to do, to act with full attention, moment to moment, with whatever is arising. A quality of mind that for me has been a tremendous support for this level of commitment and this level of sustained awareness through the day has been the quality of interest. You know, it's that very deep willingness. We might even say that that deep passion to understand our own minds and hearts. What is it that's going on moment to moment? You know, it's that it's that interest, that passion to understand the causes of suffering. And to understand and to experience, to realize the possibilities of freedom, of genuine freedom. This interest, this quality of interest, is the feeling or the intention that whatever it is that arises, whatever arises in the body, whatever it arises in the mind, let me see it, let me understand it. For so many years in my practice, I would struggle with the defilements, with the difficulties. And when they arose, <clears throat> I would just get into the self-judgment, I'm such a bad yogi, I can't do this. And then I would take it a step further, I'm such a bad person, that all of these things are arising. But a very big change happened you know, over the years of practice when I realized <clears throat> that the difficulties 
and the disturbances in the mind were not a problem. They are actually part of the practice, the part of the path. I came to the point of being much more interested in seeing the defilements in my mind than not seeing them. So at that point, there was was almost a certain quality of joy. Oh, greed. I see you. You know, or judgment, or whatever it might be. The seeing of it became a source of joy, and that arose out of interest. Just what is going on in my mind? What is the nature of this suffering? How can I be free? In my, one of my first retreats with uh, Sayadaw, this was in Burma, he just had, as many of you probably know, uh, he has the uh, habit of pointing out one's defilements to one. So I would go in, you know, for my interviews and give my report, and he would just you know, point out the different kalesas that were there. And at first, it was really upsetting to me, because first I interpreted it all as a judgment, which it wasn't. It was just a reflection. You know, and then I judged myself that how could my mind still be doing this. And the more I reacted to his pointing it out, the more he did it. So going into the interviews was at times very stressful. But at a certain point, I'd been there for you know some months. At a certain point, I went in and I was giving my report, and it was just about kind of the way I was relating to some tensions in my body or you know unpleasant sensations. And he proceeded to list this whole long, long list of defilements that were present, you know, desire and aversion and this and that. And I just started to laugh, you know, because at that point, somehow my mind had gotten to that place where I could see it and not personalize it. I could see it, this is what the mind is doing. And when I stopped personalizing it, and was able to just see this is what's arising, from then on, from, from the time I was able to smile at it, he stopped doing it in my interviews. And I think it's just, you know, okay, push the button, push the button, push the button, until there was no reaction. But it was an important lesson for me, you know, in the interest in seeing what's going on, and also seeing the emptiness of it all. It's not I, it's not self, it's not mine. And if we can see and be aware and mindful in that way, it's very freeing. Now, we often speak of the great effort needed to awaken, even even heroic effort. And certainly during the last month, we're hearing a lot of that. But I think there's another language as well that can be helpful. And that is the language of surrendering to the Dharma, surrendering to the process, surrendering with mindfulness, with awareness, Surrendering to just what there is, moment to moment. 
There's the breath, there's sensations, there's thought, there's emotion, there's sight, there's sound. So it's settling into, surrendering, opening, moment to moment, to what it is that's arising. At one point in my, in my practice, this was in the, the years in India, I would begin each sitting just with a reminder to myself, I surrender to the Dharma. It was a reminder not to struggle, not to fight, but just to be with what was present. As we practice this openness, this surrender to the process, this unfolding process, we also learn to deeply trust it. Because how things unfold, what it is that arises in our experience, goes way beyond our rational understanding of how things should be. And we have this idea that we're in control of things and that we should understand why certain things happen when they do. But this unfolding process of mind and body, the unfolding of the whole energy process, goes way beyond our rational mind, our intellectual mind. There's no way we can figure it out. And so the more we see that, it really suggests or encourages that quality of surrender. Let me just be with it as it is. And as we can surrender, as we learn to trust the process, something which I'm sure you've all experienced in different ways, there is a natural untying of a lot of the energy knots and tensions that we hold, both in our bodies, in our minds, the the emotional knots that we carry. And as this unfolds, as all this unties, unwinds, as we create the space for it to unwind, through trusting the process, being aware, being mindful of the process, there's really a great healing that begins to take place. And in that openness, it drops us to an even deeper level where we are really tuning into the momentariness, the microscopic momentariness of all phenomena. Things are arising and passing very, very quickly. So we begin to see for ourselves the insubstantiality of it all. So on the one side, there's this heroic effort. And on the other side, or another way of understanding it, is this quality of surrender, of trust, of being present, very present, from that space of openness. One Burmese teacher said, not not Upandita, but one other Burmese teacher said, work hard and have fun. You know, and so I think it's possible to actually work very hard in our practice, to be impeccable in our practice without being grim. It's possible in a strange sort of way 
to have fun. And we open to this when we remember that we're not practicing for a state. We're not practicing for some special state of mind or for some special experience. We're practicing moment to moment to let go of grasping, to let go of clinging. That's where the freedom is. That is the practice of freedom, not clinging to anything. Now, it's expressed very succinctly in the Diamond Sutra, where it says, develop a mind which clings to naught. Develop a mind which does not cling to anything at all. And out of that non-clinging, the non-grasping, non-attachment, the whole Dharma unfolds. There are two attitudes of mind which create a strong or or the basis of a strong foundation for our willingness and our interest to be with the whole range of our experience. The first of them is so critical, so crucial, especially in long-term practice. And that is the quality of patience. It's understanding that it is natural and inevitable that we'll go through many swings and cycles, go through many ups and downs. And sometimes during your time here, you'll feel happy and inspired and energetic. And at other times, you'll be discouraged and restless. And this will happen. Sometimes yogi mind might take over. You know, and the mind becomes obsessed with some small need or desire that somehow if it doesn't get fulfilled, it becomes this matter of life and death. It's just (laughs) it's just the mind in this rarefied state magnifying things. So that can happen. It does happen. I'm very familiar with it. The Buddha spoke so often in the suttas of the great importance of patience. He said that it's patience leads to Nibbāna. You know, realization, awakening, enlightenment does not happen through expectation, and it doesn't happen through impatience. It's just that settling back moment to moment, practicing the mind of not clinging. And in that space, the whole Dharma unfolds for us. Patience does not mean stoic endurance. You know, where we're gritting our teeth, okay, I'll be with this. Patience is much more the quality of constancy. That sense, whatever it is that's arising, let me be with it, let me stay with it, let me experience it. Well, all of our experience 
is simply a display of changing conditions. Whatever it is, it's just conditions manifesting, appearing. They come into being, they pass away. It's just like the changing weather. So don't be fooled even by the great thunder and lightning storms which may come, because they also are just part of the changing weather systems. So patience, really cultivating that quality because it's a tremendous strength in our practice. The second great support and protection in our meditation is the quality of metta. Now it's a friendliness to ourselves, friendliness to others, to our fellow yogis. There's one line from a, a samurai poem which I just find so helpful. This one line from the poem says, I make my mind my friend. Now, as a description of what we're doing, it just captures this, this energy, this quality of metta. I make my mind my friend. Because as we know, and as the Buddha said, the mind can be our worst enemy or greatest benefactor. So it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Our practice is to make our minds our friend. The most basic principle in Buddhism is that all experience, all situations arise when the necessary conditions are present for that thing to arise. And that all of these conditions are changing. They're all impermanent. They're all uncertain. So for now, you know, as you come together, you all have the time, the conditions of time, the energy, health, resources, interest, motivation to practice. So all these conditions have come together to make this time possible for you. We can see these conditions as a great gift and great blessing in our lives and not simply take them for granted. Now, there are so many places in the world where people were living peaceful, stable lives, just going about their business, and then in a day or a week something happens and the whole world can be turned upside down. Now, it could be a natural disaster. It could be the onset of some illness or disease. It could be the outbreak of war or violence. Conditions are always changing. So reflecting on the blessing and the transiency of these present good circumstances helps to create a sense of spiritual ardency. You know, that sense, yes, these conditions have come together in the most amazing way to be able to practice in this such a beautiful practice place that is so conducive for the work that you're doing here. 
So to really take that in, to appreciate the good fortune of these conditions coming together, knowing that conditions change. From the very first time people came into the hall, when it was first opened, both new people and experienced yogis, but from the very first time people came and sat in their hall and felt an amazing energy here. New yogis came in, sat for three hours. You know, there was something here that just was this, this wonderful, wonderful dharma energy, and not exactly sure how it came about. You know, I don't know whether it's the Davis, or all the feng shui consultation that we did, or just the kind of the purity of the motivation, the intention of what might happen here, but something has come together to make this a very extraordinary place. And when I was sitting for the two months on the teacher retreat, and when I, when I do a self-retreat, I almost always sit in my room. I would very rarely in, in other places come into the hall. Sitting here, I was just, I was pulled into this hall to sit because it was like being held, you know, in this Dharma energy field. So there's something wonderful going on. And it's out of this stillness and out of the awareness that comes a level of understanding and a level of wisdom that really can bring peace to ourselves and a great care and compassion for the world. So we're not practicing just for ourselves. Our own transformation becomes a source of transformation for those people around us. And even as we proceed just one moment to the next, the one breath, one step, one movement, even as we're proceeding in this very careful, precise, mindful way, it's helpful, I think, to hold the larger vision of possibility. You know, whether we call it enlightenment, or nibbana, or awakening, or peace, or happiness, whatever word we use, we can hold our practice in this larger vision of what is possible. I'd like to just close with a few lines from this you know, wonderful book, Mount Analog, by René Domal, which is a, the whole book is a, about a journey up the mountain as a metaphor for the spiritual journey. He wrote, keep your eye fixed on the way to the top but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends on the first.
Don't think you've arrived just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal. The first step depends on the last. Joseph was talking about um, the good fortune we have in being here and all of the conditions that have come together in making it possible. And for me already, the Force Refuge in my life has been such a great blessing. I've had the opportunity to sit for two months with the teacher's retreat and then to sit with Sayada Upandita for this last month. Just yesterday morning I was a yogi. (laughs) And this feels a little bit like breaking silence through giving a Dharma talk, (laughs) which I'll let you imagine what that would feel like. (laughs) But um, it actually is not the first time I've done quite a quick turnaround from practice to teaching. And at those times, I always feel such a sense of lineage and how this is a living tradition And, you know, it's like we have our teachers, they do their practice, and they help us. And just we fall somewhere in that lineage. The work that we do will help those that come along behind us. Back, I think it was in the beginning of the teacher's retreat, At one point I had the thought, ooh, I'll be giving a Dharma talk here one day. And I thought about what would I like to speak about the first time in this hall. And there was no hesitation in what I wanted to speak about, which is the refuges. Just because they have been, uh, you know, from actually first hearing about the refuges and going, ooh, what's this all about? (laughs) To having it be the greatest blessing of my life. And just to try to give some voice to the blessing that it is and the practice that it is in our lives because we can have different relationships with these refuges and it changes, it deepens and we go through struggle at times. But it can be such an anchor point in the unfolding of our hearts and minds. The word refuge itself, pointing towards safety, protection, shelter, finding refuge from danger and distress. It's what we've longed for in our lives, most of us. Finding a place of refuge. The Buddha talked about the triple gems, three places of refuge to which we could turn to. You know, in our lives so often, we mistakenly try to take refuge in that which is subject to change, that which in that change often brings disappointment, feelings of failure, uh, betrayal, 
So he spoke about what we could turn to in our lives that would hold our hearts, that would give us confidence, faith, in what the potential of being a human being is. This is also the first time I've given a Dharma talk from a chair. taking refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha. For some of us, it's remembering the historical man that lived over 2,500 years ago, who inquired so deeply into the suffering he experienced through his own mind-body process, inquiring very deeply to us to see the way to be free of suffering the way to liberate the mind, the way to awaken to this full potential of being a human being. For me, in remembering the historical man, it helps me to realize if one person could do it, I can do it too. That we don't have to think of the Buddha as being different or godlike, but he was a human being who did the same work that we're doing here. He undertook the same challenges. He probably didn't quite have the same circumstances that we have here, and this is our good fortune. Sometimes we can relate to the Buddha as Buddha nature, the qualities of the awakened mind, qualities of loving-kindness, wisdom, compassion, equanimity. Remembering that these qualities lie within our own hearts and minds. They get covered by defilements, they get covered in our struggle, and yet it's all within our potential. taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the way things are, the natural lawfulness of life. Sometimes taking refuge in the Dharma is translated as the Buddha's teachings, which are just teachings about the lawfulness of life. The way life is when we can see clearly, when our vision's not obscured. This helps us to surrender to our lives, to the process that's happening, to know it's not a mistake, that we can learn from whatever is unfolding. We don't need to go somewhere else. We can simply look at this mind-body process, this mind-body process of dhammas unfolding. taking refuge in the Dhamma, 
we come to know truth. We come to live in alignment with that truth. We come to be present here and now. Taking refuge in the Sangha. One aspect of Sangha is the Noble Sangha. It's all those beings who have crossed this great flood of samsara and realized the end of suffering, have liberated their minds, freed, unbound their hearts. Countless beings. Sometimes in practice we feel in touch with this noble sangha and the support that each being that awakened brings. It's also taking refuge in the ordained sangha for those of us who have just had the opportunity to sit with the ordained sangha. We can probably easily resonate with this. The purity of their lives, the dedication, the commitment they bring to awakening and to keeping the teachings alive through both both practice and words. The ordained Sangha has for over these 2,500 years been transmitting the Dhamma. It's passed from heart to heart. are coming here together to hear the teachings, to do the practice, another form of Sangha. Not us as individuals, but the nobility that lies in our intentions, the intention to awaken, the intention not to cause harm to ourselves or others, to learn to live skillfully. translation of Sangha that I've always really loved is called the living stream through which the Dhamma comes to us. This living practice of awakening. These are refuges only to the extent that they are realized and manifested in our own minds. But when we recall them, when we bring them to mind, it helps us to stay in alignment with our hearts. It helps us to keep from continually feeling battered by life, but to instead turn towards that which which is reliable, that which is trustworthy that which we can place our hearts upon.
In just a few minutes, too, we will we will chant the refuges and precepts, and this is something that we will be doing in the future at the beginning of each Dhamma talk, and we'll do it all together as a group. Um, so I'd like to just briefly talk about the precepts too, because they they give support to our practice. They give support to um, they they become the foundation for the unfolding of our practice because they help us to live in a way where we aren't perpetuating further suffering. They give us guidelines as to how to live uh, in this world. You know, li- living here in this community, we live by these precepts as a way of creating a safe container for the work that we're doing here. So the first precept, to refrain from killing, seems like a very basic precept when we look at it as on the level of human beings. And yet, we're, <laughs> we've just come through black fly season, we're going into mosquito season, and soon the deer flies will be here. <laughs> and um, there's all kinds of caterpillars and spiders and everything coming out right now. So sometimes we're challenged. And when we can Remember this precept, it helps us to take into account all life. That um, all life is precious in its very different forms. And it helps us not to heedlessly be causing harm. To really learn to live with a deep reverence for all life is the direction that this precept points us in. to refrain from taking that which is not given. Stealing. Taking something through thievish intent or deception. With this precept, when we break it, we're putting ourselves first, putting our own needs first, acting in very self-centered way, as if we are the center of the universe and not considering others, their needs. Not considering that we live in a world with limited resources, and therefore taking more than what we need. It helps us to learn to live from a place of non-greed. Gandhi once said, there's enough in the world for everyone's need, but not in the but not enough for everyone's greed. Helps us to cultivate the heart of letting go, relinquishing. The third precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. We're probably all very aware of the power of sexual energy. And probably many of us at times have felt a fool in the face of not acting in a trustworthy, wholesome way with that energy, being run by it. In the world around us, we see dramatic cases of rape, child abuse. Um, And then we can find it in even smaller ways, where we might just even be flirting with someone, where we're not sure that the person understands what our motivation is, where they could become hurt by this energy. 
And so with this precept, we really learn to be aware of this precept, uh, the sexual energy and its arising, to be present to it, and not to be run by it, to be empowered in the face of it. It's not about denying the energy, but learning to live skillfully, learning to make wise choices. And, as always on retreat, um, we change it to be to refrain from sexual activity, which just gives more of a container, helps us to really look deeply, use mindfulness. Sexual energy arises, plunge your mind into the experience without having to do anything but just to be mindful just to keep your eyes open, just to come to know this just as it is. The fourth precept, to refrain from false speech, speech that is wrongful, frivolous, harsh, useless, gossip, lies, So usually, what more is to be said? (laughs) Our speech holds so much weight, and yet, so often we say the first thing that pops out of our mind, which, you know, as we've been sitting here, many of us meditating, we know many thoughts come up, and they are better just let go of a lot of the time. So we learn to bring mindfulness to the act of speaking. And you know, during our time here, we're not speaking a lot, and yet there's still the opportunity to work with this precept. You know, that, that we uh, keep note writing to a minimum. That in our interviews, we really look to speak that which is true of our practice, that which we have seen for ourselves, that which we understand. I know that it can be challenging in interviews. It's like there can come those moments where you just want to appear a little bit better, or um, you, you don't want to say what's really going on with you because you feel shame about it. But we just learn to speak that which feels true and that which seems appropriate, useful. I think those are two guidelines that have helped me a lot, speaking that which is true and useful. In our culture, we often speak, um, have this sense of uh, the right to speak our truth. And we may often find that it's not appropriate. It's not helpful in that moment. And so, just looking to see as we speak. Fifth precept, to refrain from the use of intoxicants, intoxicants which cloud the mind. Our work here is to clarify, to see clearly. And if we're using intoxicants, it undermines the very work that we're doing. But just to say, this doesn't include medication. So please, if you're on medication, continue. These are the five training guidelines that the Buddha gave 
And there's also three additional precepts that some of us have been living by for the last month and may be continuing on with and all are invited to do. Um, These additional precepts just help to give a bit more support to our practice. One precept being that we don't eat after lunch until dawn the next morning. And that opens up a whole chunk of time in the day where we can keep the practice really simple. Sit and walk, sit and walk. It's not that we don't include eating when we do it, but it, it just allows this simplicity. And, you know, not, we don't have the usual preoccupation. Oh, I wonder what's for tea. Will it be this? Will it be that? But we just stay present. <clears throat> the seventh precept is to refrain from entertainment, beautification, adornment, which also can take so much energy. And for what? You know, to refrain from entertainment. Often in our lives, when we don't want to be with ourselves, we don't want to look into this heart-mind, we'll simply entertain ourselves, keep ourselves otherwise distracted. Here there's not a lot of entertainment. But still, you can notice your motivations. If you're sitting for hours endlessly looking at birds or squirrels or something, just to keep it in mind. Beautification, I'm sure we're not here in high heels or (laughs) um, fancy clothes. But it's just to notice when, when that motivation is, is there to, to try to have a certain appearance, thinking that we need to look a certain way. And the last precept is to refrain from using high and luxurious seats or beds. And it's just about how we often keep ourselves comfortable in lives, in our lives. And just the ability to let go, renounce. The beds that we have here are fine if you're on this precept to be sleeping on. But to notice if we're wanting to put ten cushions under us to be comfortable. Just paying attention. These precepts are a way of living our lives in alignment with the deepest aspirations of our hearts and minds, really carrying our practice into the very way we live our lives. And it will happen that at times we break a precept. It can happen where we may intentionally do it, or it can happen when delusion is present in the mind, and we simply didn't see clearly the implications of what we're doing. Whatever the reason may be, when we've found that we've broken a precept, we can take the time to feel that. Only recently, when I found that I had broken a precept, I sat with the phrase of equanimity. All beings are owners of their own karma. Their happiness depends upon their actions. And I let it be for myself. And I just let that action reverberate through my being without judgment, but to really feel it. And then the process becomes to forgive, to let go, and to recommit, to bring again 
these precepts as a guideline for how to live. And life gets confusing at times, so if we can fall back on these precepts, when we're confused, it can help us untangle the delusion. Not to take them as being black and white, but to really inquire into your own life, to let them become vitally alive, to let them be a practice that supports awakening. So now chanting together the refuges and precepts, and we'll again do this as a group. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddham Saranang Gachami Dhamang Saranang Gachami Sangam Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi Buddham Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi Dhamang Saranang Gachami Dutiyampi Sangam Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Buddham Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Dhamang Saranang Gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranang Gachami Panati Pata Veramini Sikapadam Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramini Sikapadam Samadhyami Abramacharya Veramini Sikapadam Samadhyami Musawada Veramini Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana Veramini Sikapadam Samadhyami
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.